If you have your Bibles, then go ahead and grab them. We're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 8 this morning. I am very excited to be here. Uh, I am excited after uh, months of praying and seeking the Lord uh, in this process, I know on your end you've been doing the exact same thing, but to finally have the opportunity to stand in front of you, to meet you, to interact with you guys, and begin uh, hopefully a very fruitful relationship, Lord willing. But more than that, right now I am very excited uh, to have the opportunity to worship alongside you guys, uh, to worship our risen Lord, and to have the opportunity to preach this morning. I take uh, preaching very, very seriously because I take the Word of God very seriously. So I'm very excited to to be here. It has been a busy week, to say the very least. If you've taken a look at my resume, I think Daniel said in the, the first service, if you haven't, it's at the church's website, NRBC or whatever it is, slash resume. You can find my resume. You can check it out. But... Uh, I am still in school, still full-time seminary student, so this week I had uh, an exam that I had to get done. I had a seven-page paper that I had to turn in. I had sermon preparation that had to be done all while working uh, the midnight shift at UPS. So it has been a very busy week, to say the least. But I know that I am certainly not the only person that feels this way. Uh, you guys know exactly what it's like to have busy weeks. Uh, I'm, I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, have full-time jobs that you work, takes the majority of your day, and you come home from work, and then there's laundry that needs to be done, there's meals that needs to be uh, cooked, and then you have to clean up, put everything away, the house is an absolute wreck because you have a bunch of kids running around, it looks like a hurricane's gone through, so you're just trying to clean up after everybody, and then once everybody's finally clean, ready to go, and you get them in bed. Finally, you have a couple minutes. You can breathe. You can relax. And then it's time to go to bed, right? And then you start the whole process all over again. And we get this, we get this habit. We are so busy with everything that just life throws at us that oftentimes we forget the main purpose of why we are here. Right? We forget that our main purpose, why God has put us here corporately to worship, but where he has you in your job, at your school, at your grocery store, whatever events you have going on, God has put you there for a purpose, and that is to know the Lord Jesus Christ in a deeper way and to share him with those that are around you. That's why God has put you where he has. And what we're going to see this morning is Paul's reminder to the Corinthians of that which is of most importance, what is of top priority. After spending a lot of energy, a lot of time writing to the Corinthians, right? We're in chapter 15, so that means there have been 14 chapters previously that's full of just good stuff. Paul tries to refocus their hearts, refocus their minds on what is of top priority. I'm sure he understood that in the first 14 chapters, there's a lot of stuff in there that people disagree about. 
Well, I think it means this. Well, I think it means this. Paul understood that that would be the case. But in 1 Corinthians 15, as we're going to see, he focuses them in on what is most important, the gospel message. Because if we get the gospel message wrong, we do not have hope. You do not have hope. Do you do we understand that? You could get everything else in the Bible correct, be able to explain, interpret everything. But if we get the gospel wrong, we do not have hope, both now and into eternity. So this morning, I want to I want to bring us back to what is most important. We'll spend some time refocusing our minds and our hearts away from all the busyness. And just center our our focus on the gospel message. And honestly, it makes me think of uh, Vince Lombardi. A lot of you may know that name, legendary football coach for the Green Bay Packers. And in 1961, he walks into to spring training. Right? In 1961, the Packers had just lost in the championship game. They'd blown it in the fourth quarter, so you can imagine uh, players coming into spring training, they're amped up, they're ready to go. All right, we got so close. What's the coach going to say to make us train a little bit harder, to do something a little bit different so we can, we can get back and we can win the championship this year? Vince Lombardi walks in, again, spring training full of these professional athletes, and the first thing that he does, he grabs a ball and he holds it up in front of them. He says, gentlemen, this is a football. Coach Lombardi was bringing them back to the basics before starting anything else. And as Christians, we must be sharp on our fundamentals. We need to know the basic tenets of our faith, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is of first Importance. So that's going to be our focus this morning. So hopefully by now you are already on the correct page in your Bible or have found the correct tab on your device, whatever you're reading off of. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, looking at verses 3 through 8, and I will be reading out of the English Standard Version this morning. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8 says... <coughs> For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Father, we are here for you. Focus our hearts, focus our minds on who you are, on the person and work of Christ. Holy Spirit, I pray you would speak through your word as you have already said uh, in Isaiah 55 that your word will not return void, but it will accomplish everything you set it out to accomplish. So I'm trusting that this morning, Holy Spirit, speak through me. Protect this congregation from anything that might be from me. Speak 
to their hearts, open their eyes. Pete, we need you. We absolutely need you to focus our hearts on what is most important. So we trust you and we love you. It's for your beautiful name, I pray. Amen. All right, the first aspect that I want to focus on this morning, if you're taking notes, uh, here is the first main theme, and that is the source of the gospel message. All right, the source of the gospel message. Look back at verse 3. It says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So he stresses the fact that the gospel is the top priority. It is of absolute importance again because if we if we mess up the gospel then everything else will be all for naught all our trunk or treat efforts going down to to georgia for disaster relief all these good things that we do if we get the gospel wrong it will have no eternal value whatsoever but look look at how he says he learned it for i delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He says, he says he received it. Now you may ask, why does that matter? Why is that important? Well, to begin, it means that the gospel message that Paul is preaching to them, writing to them, and according to the first, first two verses of 1 Corinthians 15, the Corinthians have believed it, they have received it, and they are standing on it. It means that Paul didn't make it up. Right? It did not originate with Paul. Right? He is the herald of the message. He is not the author of the message. He is the one that rides into town and says, thus says the king. He didn't make it up. But he received it. I'm sure that you remember how Paul was first converted to Christ. He was on his way to Damascus. Right? Not, as, not as a friend of Christianity. He was an ardent opponent of Christianity. He was going there with the purpose to bring the Christians back to face trial. And if he had his way, he would give approval at their death in the same way he did with Stephen. Right? So he was no friend of Christianity. He thought they were a plague on society. Because as a Jew, he saw the worship of God in any other way as a false religion. But then on the way to... Damascus, right? You remember the story? Jesus shows up, bam! Literally knocks Paul off of his horse. Right? Light shines all around him. Paul's blind. And then in verse 9, of, uh, excuse me, verse 4 of Acts 9, Luke describes the scene. It says, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus himself, risen Lord, is the one who shared the gospel with Paul. He is the one who taught Paul the gospel. Now you may say, well, what about Ananias, who shows up later on? Well, Ananias was called by God to lay his hands on Paul so that he could see again. But I'm, I'm willing to bet that by that moment, when, when Saul, when Paul hears Jesus audibly say, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, that's a, that's a pretty solid indication that Jesus really is raised from the dead, right? But not, 
Not only is that my interpretation, that's actually Paul's interpretation, right? So don't believe me, believe the Bible. Galatians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul writes, For I did not receive it, he's talking about the gospel, from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So the message that Paul was preaching and teaching, and by extension, not only to the Corinthians, but to us, did not have its origin in Paul, in his mind, or in the mind of another man, but it originated in God himself. God is the origin and the source of the gospel message. And because that is so, because it's God's gospel, not our gospel, we have no rights or authority to change even the slightest letter of the gospel. It is God's gospel. But that should... That should give us confidence, right? When we look at every other religion of the world that can, that can trace their heritage back to one individual that they viewed as very smart, that came up with this crazy way to worship, we take a step back and say, no, this is God. The one who spoke creation into existence is the one who originated the gospel message. That's right. God is the author of the gospel. And that leads us to our second point this morning that I want to take a look at, namely the larger narrative of the gospel. Right, the larger narrative. What do I mean by larger narrative? And basically what I mean is that the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, the entire Bible is a single story in which God is revealing his salvation to his people. Right, that the entire Old Testament is pointing to one individual. That Jesus Christ and his person and his work is the climax of all of redemptive history. The way God has been saving his people from the beginning. And everything in the Old Testament is pointing towards and leading up to the coming of Jesus Christ. It's all about Christ. Look back at what Paul says in verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The simple gospel message that we hold so dearly. Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man, lived a sinless life of perfect obedience to the Father, falsely condemned, crucified on a Roman cross, bearing on his body the wrath of God for sins. Yeah. Dead, buried, and resurrected. The gospel is objective. It is objectively true, which means that it's outside of our own viewpoint or perspective. Which basically means, whether or not we agree or disagree, believe or don't believe, that doesn't change the fact that the gospel actually happened. Right. Right? right? Whether I agree or disagree with the fact that George Washington was the first president is really irrelevant, right? That happened regardless of whether or not I think it did. In the same way, Jesus died and rose again objectively. But we'll, we'll talk about that more in a minute. But because the gospel has its source in God, it's not plan B. Right? 
God wasn't sitting up in, in heaven after Adam and Eve had taken up the fruit. He's like, I don't know what we're going to do now. They, they blown this one. All right, we need, we need to call a council. We'll, we'll form a committee and we'll, we'll figure this thing out. No, from the beginning, this was God's plan. If Christ's death and resurrection were planned from the beginning, then we would assume that God would have spoken about it throughout time, right? We would assume that the Old Testament has, has some references and inferences about it, correct? And there is. There are plenty. But to begin, the, the notion that the Old Testament uh, points to Christ is, is not even just my perspective. That's actually Jesus' Jesus's own perspective on the matter. Or you remember in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus has already resurrected from the dead, we meet these two individuals walking on the road to Emmaus. Right? Jesus has hidden himself uh, from them. They can't recognize him. He, he rolls up beside them. Hey, what are you guys talking about? And they just kind of stop and they're very baffled. What, what are you talking about? Like, are you, have you been living under a rock the past week? Have you, do you not know what's been going on? And Jesus kind of kind of plays dumb with them. No. What's going on? What I miss? And they say, well, you never heard about, about Jesus of Nazareth? This, this prophet, this, this man that was mighty in word and deed? Uh, we, we thought he was going to be the Messiah. We thought he was going to be God's one that was going to save us. But, but then he was, he was crucified. He was buried. Now it's the third day. and we're, We've been told that these women went to the tomb. There was no body there, but an angel showed up to them and, and said he's not here. He's risen. And they ran back. And then two others, two other of his disciples ran and checked out the tomb. And they said the exact same thing. The body's not there. And Jesus, he's surprised that they're surprised. And he says to them in Luke 24, 26, and 27, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And gosh, wasn't this the plan from the beginning? And then 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Amen. So Jesus began with the first book of the Bible and worked through the entire Old Testament in order to demonstrate to these two men, this was always the plan. This is always the way it was going to be, that Christ should suffer, die, and rise from the dead. Your entire Bible points to Jesus. That means every law in Leviticus... I know it's your favorite book to read. Like you just get excited when you're going through your Bible reading plan. You're like, yes, I'm in Leviticus for the next month, right? But every law in Leviticus is showing the way Christ would live in conformity to the law of God. Every king, whether good or bad, in Israel was pointing to the greater King whose throne would never end. Every priest offering sacrifices pointed to the great high priest who was to come that would offer a sacrifice that would be sufficient. They wouldn't have to make it over and over and over again. 
And now he represents his people to God. Amen. And every prophet of the Old Testament preaching the word of God points to one who was to come. Who would not only preach the word of God truly, but is in himself the word incarnate. It is all about Jesus. And Isaiah 53 is a key text. We don't have time to, to look at the entire thing, but especially in regard to the death of Christ. In verse 5 of Isaiah 53, he writes, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. That the Christ, that the suffering servant of Israel would be pierced and would be crushed. But not for his own sins. Do you see that? He was pierced and he was crushed. In fact, continue on in the chapter. And, and Isaiah will say it was the will of the Lord to crush him. But it wasn't for crimes that he had committed against God. No, it was for our transgressions. It was for our iniquities. So when we, we look at the cross, we see a beautiful picture of the love of God. We see a beautiful picture of God's love for his people. But on the cross, heaven forbid we ever look there and not see the utter sinfulness of sin. The heinousness of sin. Because that's how much it cost in order to save us. It took the death of the infinitely worthy Son of God because our sin is infinitely heinous against God. That's right. And if we think lightly of our sin, it's not that big a deal. Nobody's perfect. If we think lightly of our sin, we will think lightly of our Savior. Because if your sin is not that big a deal, Christ's death is not that big of a deal. But he was crushed for our iniquities. But not only was his death prophesied in the Old Testament, but so was his resurrection from the dead. Psalm 16, 10 says, For you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your Holy One see corruption. So David in this text, writing this psalm, is speaking prophetically that God's coming one would not be abandoned in the grave. His body would not see corruption, decay, but that God would raise him up from the dead. Now you may be thinking, well, reading what you have on the screen, right, reading all of Psalm 16, that's a pretty, that's a pretty far leap there, Ethan. Right, wouldn't it be more natural to read the text, uh, David writing when he says, For you would not abandon my soul to Sheol, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we be smarter, better English readers if we would just say, Well, he's talking about himself? But again, this isn't my interpretation of the text. You see, in Acts chapter 2, on the occasion of Pentecost, right, after the Holy Spirit has descended on the group of uh, followers of Christ. There's been the mighty rushing wind. They're rushing out. They're speaking in tongues. Everybody's gathering around. What is going on? We heard this loud sound. What's going on? And Peter stands up and preaches the first Christian 
message. And in Acts chapter 2, in verse 28, Peter actually quotes this text. He actually quotes Psalm 16.10, and then he explains it in verse 29, still in the sermon. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. Here it is. Listen to this. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So Peter is the one that says that this text is about the resurrection of Christ, showing that the death and resurrection of Christ has been talked about through the entire Old Testament, right? It did not originate in man, but is from God. And that means that when we read the Bible, that we don't have just a collection of ancient texts that just happen to be put together. But we have one overarching story of the way that God has been saving his people from the beginning with the climax being the person and work of Christ. So that means every time we read the Bible, Mm. believing it's the very word of God, regardless of where you are, we are always to have an eye towards Christ. Where is Christ in this text? How is he shown? Because the, the goal of the Bible, in the same way as the goal of our lives, is to know him more deeply so that we can share him with others. Amen. Finally, not only is the gospel source God and not man, and not only has it been prophesied throughout the entire Old Testament, all of it leading up to this climax, but it also happened in history. Now, we hinted at this earlier, but I want to emphasize it one last time, that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is not just a great story, but it actually happened. Right? It's not... Beowulf, it's not Hercules, it's not these massive mythology sets, but it's history. So that when you pick up the Bible, you are reading history. Like this actually happened. If you are a lawyer, again, I don't know, room this big, there might be a, there might be a lawyer somewhere around here. But if you're like me and just like crime shows. Like there's 10,000 different options. Like you, you can take your pick on television of just crime shows. Uh, you watch enough of them, you realize that when it comes to a court case, the one thing that sets apart a good court case is whether or not there are witnesses. Right? If I walk into the courthouse prosecuting this individual knowing I got three or four people that can say, he did it, this is where I was standing, this is what he was wearing, this is what happened, this is what time it was. I feel pretty good about my chances, right? Credible witnesses make all the difference in the world. In the same way, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, is really arguing like a lawyer here. He's pleading his case. Look at verses 5 through 8. He's listing his witnesses. Verse 5, And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Do you see the way that Paul's arguing here? And he's listing his witnesses that will all confirm his story. I love the fact that he, he says in verse 6, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Right, if you can have two or three good witnesses, you're usually doing pretty good. But Paul's saying there are 500 individuals, most of whom are still alive. Don't take my word for it, Corinthian readers. Don't take my word. Go talk to them. They'll tell you the exact same thing I'm telling you. Jesus really is alive. Another interesting individual on this list. We don't have time for all of them. But another interesting one to me is James. I love the fact that James is on this list. Now, who is James? James is Jesus' brother. Right? Who lived in the same house as Jesus. Uh, and that even at the beginning of Jesus' ministry was not a believer. Right? He did not believe anything Jesus was saying. In fact, in John chapter 4... Verses 2 through 5, his brothers are kind of, kind of mocking him when they say, excuse me, John chapter 4, 2 through 5, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. You want to be well known? You want to spread your cause? Don't be in secret. Go in front of people. Show them what you can do. And then in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. So James didn't start as a follower of Jesus. But he died as the leader of the church in Jerusalem and a martyr for Christ. What happened? What changed? Because again, it's, it's easy to get in front of a crowd, be passionate, and convince a bunch of people you don't know. It's hard to convince your, your family members of something, right? You can't really pull the wool over their eyes. Right? They, they can see through you most of the time. So what changed for James for him to go, he's crazy, to he's the son of God. And I'm willing to lay down my life on that. I'll tell you what happened. James saw... Jesus crucified gruesomely. The Romans were very good at killing people. They were very good. Jesus was buried and then rose from the dead. James sees him crucified, dead, buried, and then has a conversation with them after he has risen from the dead. It's usually a solid way to convince your brother that you really are the Son of God. Rise from the dead and have lunch with him. Right? Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus died on the cross for our sins in payment, bearing on himself the wrath of God that is due us. Buried and risen. Again, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we do not have hope. 
Do we understand that? Paul's entire argument, the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, I highly recommend going and finishing this chapter when you get home. But Paul's argument for the rest of 1 Corinthians 15 is if Jesus is not risen, we're not going to be risen because nobody can be risen. If the Son of God isn't raised, we can't be raised. Therefore, if he's not risen, we're still dead in our sins, we're not saved, and we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ isn't risen physically, historically, objectively risen, we cannot be saved. In Romans chapter 4, verses 24 through 25, Paul says this exact uh, idea again. He says, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Speaking about righteousness, the 25 is the key. Talking about Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses. Again, emphasizing it's ours, not his. And raised for our justification. Our justification. Our right standing before a holy God is predicated by whether or not Christ is risen from the dead. If Christ is not risen, we are not justified. However, Jesus is raised from the dead. That's right. Jesus is physically raised from the dead, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. That's right. So if you're here this morning... And you have never believed in Christ at all. I invite you to this morning. That, that the Christ we're, we're here to worship tied in our place. And through simple believing, through trusting, through receiving. Nothing that you can do, just receiving this you will be saved. Romans 10, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. Amen. That Christianity is not just a, a set of morals. It's not just a set of do this and don't do that. But it's all based on objective truth that Christ is who he says he is. And he accomplished what he says he accomplished. That we can have hope for today, whether times are fantastic or whether things are, are pretty bad. Again, in a room this size, I'm sure there are a lot of you that are going through very difficult times. But we can have hope for the moment. Our feet can be on solid ground. Because Christ is risen. And he can save this morning. Can if you are not a follower of Christ, I would urge you to believe today. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are not dead, but that you are risen. And we worship you for that, that you, you've made a way to reconcile us back to God. That we can know you, we can be in relationship with you as we were made to be. Father, uh, in this place, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that, that that's not just doesn't go to church, but doesn't know you. The goal is to know you. And I pray that today would be the day that you move, that you open eyes, that you save for the glory of your name and for our everlasting joy.
We need you. We love you. It's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen. Amen.